0: I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church podcast. The following teaching is part six in the series. You were dead, letter to the church in Colossae. Paul says that he has quote not stopped praying, as if so bold a statement demands no further commentary. Maybe Paul assumes that this is the prerequisite to discipleship. Maybe it is. Anyway, I was saying I'm not a big fan of sunshine. Today was great. Uh, except for, you know, it was a little bit humid, but we'll take what we can get. And I know you guys think that I'm saying this stuff to be a butthead, maybe partly so, but, uh, I've actually long dreamed of spending a vacation in Alaska during the polar night when the sun doesn't come up at all. Uh, I want to go to a cabin there, no sun for like at least a week for me. They get no sun for like a month or some such thing. And just read and write for a week in the darkness and snow. glory. Amen? Uh, And I'd have done it already if it didn't cost a million dollars to get out there, or what may as well be a million dollars for me. So I don't like sunshine. In fact, I hate its guts. Summer hasn't started officially, but I'm already looking forward to seeing it shrivel and die in its hot, sweaty grave as the glory of another cozy fall moves in over us in just a few short months. That's how I like to look at it. In just a little while, we'll be back to fall. I don't like sunshine, but I do like swimming pools. You guys like swimming pools? Megan, do you like swimming pools? She nodded slowly. I was not that enthusiastic. All right, hang in there. Um, I like swimming pools. I like air conditioning. So for years, my family's vacationed in hot places with swimming pools and air conditioning, and everyone, all jokes aside, everyone has a, a beautiful time. I love it sincerely. Abby and I bring lots of books on vacation, and I like to ideally you know, save some new novel that I've been excited about for such a trip, but if there's not an obvious choice for such a thing, I usually bring a couple of books, you know, you don't know how those are going to go, new books, and then uh, one or two um, novels that I know I love and have been wanting to revisit, so you know you at least get something trustworthy on your trip. One of them this time around, funny, funnily enough, I brought uh, Cormac McCarthy's The Road to reread <laughs> on vacation. If you've read The Road, uh, then you know it's not exactly a poolside kind of book. Uh, nor is its 2009 film, film adaptation a vacation kind of movie. So I waited until I got back to revisit the film. The Rhodes film counterpart is a great adaptation of what must have been, a, I'm assuming, a very difficult book to adapt. It doesn't have a traditional plot and structure. But apparently, uh, author Cormac McCarthy was very pleased with the screenplay, and he only insisted, I read this this last week, he only insisted that four lines from the novel must be included in the film, and he could make his peace with any other changes. In these four four lines of dialogue, a young boy asks his father, confronting the constant horror of this post-apocalyptic nightmare world of evil and suffering and death. The young boy asks his father, what would you do if I died? And the father answers, if you died, I would want to die too. And the boy asks, so you could be with me? And the father answers simply, yes, so I could be with you. The Road is not an ordinary apocalypse drama, and though the exchange that I just read, it obviously divorced from its context. It's terribly dark, and honestly, it's still pretty dark in the book, but it captures a love between a father and son that not only burns bright in spite of everything else in existence having gone dark in the story, but it epitomizes that love is in essence being with, the love of withness that cannot be stopped by an entire world of death. This is what you and I, I would argue, were meant for, made for, union with God and union with one another, God with us. With that said, turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, we are spending the summer studying one first century letter written to a church facing cultural pressure to abandon the way of Jesus. The letter that we call Colossians was written by Paul, who also wrote most of the New Testament. So way to go, Paul. That's no small thing. So it's predictably and characteristically profound. It's taking us a few weeks just to get out of the first few lines. That's okay. Okay. But while you catch up on the last few weeks of practices in your communities, I don't know if you guys fell behind. We fell behind because I went on vacation. It was the whole thing. Before we move on to the next theologically robust chunk of sentences or really just a group of words, I want to spend just one more week, if we can, on a concept woven into Paul's opening remarks and into the way that we follow Jesus. Would you guys go ahead and stand with me as a gesture of reverence as we read from the Scriptures? And let's read once again from Colossians 1. who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. These words are inspired by God. Go ahead and take a seat, and then do me a favor, don't close your Bibles yet, go ahead and turn to the left, back to the gospel of John chapter 1. John chapter 1. At Van City, we talk all the time about discipleship. You'll hear that word a lot. Disciples, discipleship, disciples of Jesus. We don't call ourselves disciples and what we do, discipleship, just to get around the culturally confusing and overly politicized or politicized at all words, Christians and Christianity. Um, We don't call ourselves disciples just to get around saying Christian. In fact, these days, I kind of like it more and more. There was a time when, like many of my fragile generation, I wanted to distance myself from the ugly American connotations of the term Christian. And I used things like Jesus follower instead, which is a totally fine term. I still use it, it's great. But, and this may surprise you, Van City, I am, I'm told, at heart a, a contrarian of some sort, something of a, a provocateur, I'm told. So, I kind of enjoy seeing people screw up their faces as if they've just bitten a lemon when I use the word Christian in public. So I'll be at a checkout in Portland. This is a real story. And uh, they're, you know, like, how's your day going? It's pretty good. I just finished work. And they're like, oh, yeah, what do you do? So this is the conversation that you have with clerks. And uh, I say, I'm the pastor of a church. And they say, oh, a church? And kind of the air gets sucked out of the conversation. They look all nervous. And they're like, oh, what kind? Uh, Unitarian? Or is it New Age? Or is it? progressive spiritual Buddhist infusion or some kind of multi-religious identity safe space? And I say, no, it's none of those things at all. And then I say the horrifying word, it's Christian, Jesus, the Bible, the whole thing. And I watch them go inward, you know, head swimming with questions. Oh my God, is he one of them? Is he anti-science? Is he an angry right-wing conspiracy cultist? And of course, being none of those things, I could set their minds at ease, but I don't because it's funny. So so I say, have a good day. And uh, now if you'll just hand over my oat milk and Impossible Burgers, I'll be on my way. Thank you very much. And then I drive my little Prius home (laughs) listening to angry punk rock music because I'm so rebellious. I am Christian, but the term the New Testament prefers over Christian is disciple, or put another way, an apprentice. Of Jesus. And you hear it here all the time. We say it constantly: apprenticing Jesus, discipleship to Jesus. And an apprentice, should they accept the invitation of Jesus to apprentice, incurs three lifelong goals: to be with Jesus, so that over time you become like Jesus, and then eventually you learn to do the kinds of things that Jesus did. Notice, as always, it begins with be with Jesus. It's taken me a very long time to understand how foundational, how quintessential this simple yet often overlooked and largely, I would argue, misunderstood concept is to following Jesus. Last week, Cam was talking about what it means to be in Christ, to be a new creation. He talked about what it means to live under the authority of a new king and a new kingdom. Before that, I was talking about Paul's idea of prayer without ceasing. We have not stopped praying for you. He writes in the text that we just read that God would, quote, fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. And I spent a lot of my life and my discipleship to Jesus assuming that the primary, if not only, way that this is done is via studying the Bible, learning theology, doing spiritual disciplines like prayer and fasting, that kind of thing, living in community, being part of the church, and there you go. And it is, it is done that way. All of those things are essential to following Jesus, but each of them grow from the soil of being with Jesus. Being with Jesus is the presupposition to everything else that we do as disciples of Jesus. So let's read a story from the Gospel of John, chapter 1. This is a funny story. Are you guys all right? You still good? Yep, great, thank you. John, chapter 1, look down at verse 32. Then John, the Baptist, gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him, and I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one, or Messiah. Verse 35, the next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus, naturally. Seems like a bold statement, so they went Following after Jesus, verse 38. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you'll see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who had heard that John, what John said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah that is, the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which, when translated, is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, Follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked. Come and see," said Philip, just like Jesus did. Now, the thing I like about this funny story is how down to earth it reads. Jesus turns around, like, "What do you want? Where are you staying? Come, you'll find out." His invitation essentially is, "Come, hang out with me, be with me, and you will see for yourself what it is that I'm up to and who I am." His disciples then extend that same invitation to other people. You want to know about Jesus and whether or not he is who he claims to be? Come and see. Come be with him. It's not enough to just learn the story. Anyone can share the story. And they started to. It's the one that Moses wrote about, one from the law and the prophets. But come and be with Jesus. But you and I are not privy to the physically present Jesus, if you hadn't noticed. This one concept really confuses my kids. Um, they ask all the time how that works is Jesus invisible? They ask. This is a question we answered recently. And we're like, well, yeah, but it's not the way you're thinking. He's not going to bump into the wall or something like that. So then, you know, you immediately answer, is Jesus invisible? Well, if what you mean by is invisible, is he here but you can't see him, then yes, he's invisible. And they're like, so is he in this chair? Like, well, he's everywhere. And then they're like, what? Yesterday uh, in the car, Isla just announced all of a sudden, Jesus is with us. And we're like, oh, wow you know, that was pretty impressive. Way to go. And then she went, and he is not wearing a seatbelt because none of those seatbelts were buckled in the car. But it does beg the question, if this is the way Jesus invites his disciples into relationship, come and see, and if Jesus calls followers that they might be with him, which is the language that the gospel authors use, then how does that work for us? Turn just a few pages to the right over to John 14. In this story, Jesus is approaching the time of his execution, and he begins to talk about a time when he will no longer walk with disciples up and down the dirt roads of ancient Israel. Like us, they will no longer be privy to the physically present Jesus. And then this happens. Look down at verse 15. Jesus says, If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another, Advocate, To help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of Truth. The world cannot accept Him because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him, for He lives with you and will be in you. I, Jesus says, will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. That phrase that Jesus uses, another advocate, sort of escapes a, a simple translation. It could be read, another like me or maybe even more literally, another one of me, and which begs the question, okay, well, who is this mysterious another? And the text tells us it is the Spirit of truth. Then look down at verse 25. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. So, The way that you and I enjoy the company and closeness of Jesus, how we hang out with Jesus, as it were, is through a relationship with his spirit. The Holy Spirit, the scriptures call the advocate or the spirit of truth or the spirit of Jesus. And this means that the first and primary goal of our apprenticeship to Jesus is to somehow learn to live in a constant state of awareness and connection to the Holy Spirit. That is the baseline of discipleship. It's step one, and it sounds to us impossibly far-fetched. Over the years, we've often gone back to the metaphor that Jesus uses to describe this sort of relationship. When he said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean, clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Jesus' metaphor to describe the way in which we are with him is of a branch abiding in, or you could describe that as flourishing out of or acting in accordance with the vine from which it grows. In a single small teaching from that text that we just read, Jesus uses the word meno or abide ten times. His point is that the disciple is to come into the presence of the Father and stay there. And if you're still wondering what that means, we're talking basically about constantly being in two places at one time. Eating breakfast, And in the presence of God at the gym and in the presence of God at the movie theater and in the father's presence in conversation with a friend and in the father's presence answering emails your morning commute your nine to five dealing with your insane toddlers all while simultaneously in the father's presence not just being there but learning to remember that you are Paul called this sort of thing prayer without ceasing our Catholic brothers and sisters call it contemplation. The medieval mystics uh, called it the practice of the presence of God. And Brother Lawrence, who was one of them, famously documented the pursuit of constant connection to God in this small little book, The Practice of the Presence of God. In the 15th century, Brother Lawrence, uh, lacking the education to become a cleric, served instead as a dishwasher in a French monastery. And he devoted his life to the practice of the presence of God. So consumed was the man by God's sustained intimacy that people eventually would come from all over Europe to watch him in his kitchen as he reveled in the father's companionship. After Brother Lawrence died, his letters were compiled into this little volume. It's a great little book. I highly recommend it. He writes this. The time of business does not, with me, differ from the time of prayer And in the noise and clatter of my kitchen, while several persons are at the same time calling for different things, I possess God in as great tranquility as if I were upon my knees before the blessed sacrament. Now, if you're like me, you read this and you think, that sounds pretty nice. Sounds pretty good, actually. And that, to me, actually makes a lot of sense. Think about the way that among the many burdens of the human condition, loneliness is likely king. Nearly every human being that has ever lived carries a deep soul longing to be connected to someone else, to experience love and belonging and connection. This is not a uniquely Christian concept. Science agrees with this. Psychology, everyone knows that this is a thing. It's the way that we're wired biologically to seek out relationships and friendships and love, affection, romance. It's why we have kids. Science, again, confirms this. In fact, we used to believe that Uh, exposure to addictive substances created addiction, until we discovered that it actually grows from the human need for bonding and connection. So the idea is that we're so hardwired down to ourselves for connection that if we don't get it from people, as God intended, and from God, we scramble desperate to draw it up from the barren soil of drugs or pornography or smartphones or social media. And I was thinking about one of my favorite songs as I wrote this teaching on one of my favorite albums in which the lyricist kind of summarizes this well. He writes, I'm tired, so tired, tired of having sex. I'm spread so thin. I don't know who I am. Why can't I be making love come true? We all want real, meaningful connection, and we know, if only deep down, when our attempts at it are broken and empty and failing. All of us, including you self-proclaimed introverts, today, In pop culture, anyway, the sort of introvert-extrovert paradigm is accepted as a given, despite the fact that it's kind of hotly debated and, I think, kind of problematic. One reason is that we know about neuroplasticity, that the brain can be rewired over time. We know that we grow and change over time. We know that in context, people are complicated. It sort of depends. But the bigger reason, I think, is that, in my experience, anyway, I have seen the introvert-extrovert labels, which seem at this point, like little more than marketing gimmicks, as excuses for being a butthead. You know, the idea is like, oh, well, I dominate conversations. I'm loud and overbearing and, you know, domineering. I'm just an extrovert. Or more often, it's the, you know, I'm antisocial and emotionally immature. I'm just an introvert. Throughout quarantine, I would sometimes hear people say, I like being constantly alone, not having to interact with other human beings. And I would think that is not a good thing. It is not a personality quirk. It is brokenness, and it's not actually true. And I'm saying this as someone who probably qualifies as an introvert on every conceivable and dubious personality test. You were not made for loneliness. That's not who you are. You were made for union naturalists chalk this up to survival of the species, that it's scientifically proven that we thrive as organisms when we're united in community. And disciples of Jesus attribute this to God. God is a family who makes more family, us with one another and us with God. In her book, Almost Christian, Kenda Dean argues that, I found this fascinating, the two greatest factors that she says ensure that a child raised in the church will remain a faithful follower of Jesus into adulthood are this. One, that they have parents who walk through their own trials without giving up on Jesus. But then two, and get this, that the child has no less than five adult Christians in their life who know and love them and who impress on them a faithful commitment to the way of Jesus. In other words, her research led her to that their family is in a small group. In other words, faithfulness to Jesus is born from and refined in withness, being with God and with one another. This is something I want very badly. My guess is that I'm not alone. Here's a long quote that I've often read when we first took up the journey of bringing our church into the practices of Jesus. It's long, but you'll be fine. The first and most basic thing we can and must do is to keep God before our minds. about how simple and how stark a statement that is. Let me read the first sentence again. The first and most basic thing we can and must do is to keep God before our minds. This is the fundamental secret of caring for our souls our part in thus practicing the presence of God is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to him. In the early time of our practicing, we may well be challenged by our burdensome habits of dwelling on things less than God, but these are habits, not the law of gravity, and can be broken. A new grace-filled habit will replace the former ones as we take intentional steps toward keeping God before us. Soon, Our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. If God is the great longing of our souls, he will become the pole star of our inward beings. Living in a constant state of awareness of and connection to the presence of God all day, every day, is, in other words, all throughout church history, it has been argued that this is something that we can learn. But it doesn't just happen. It takes in fact, I would argue that in the chaos of our sort of hyperactive, over-busy, technologically addicted, overstimulated, emotionally immature world, is that this sort of pursuit requires more intentionality than ever before. Washing dishes in a monastery is one place to practice. It sounds like a pretty decent place to practice, but washing dishes in your kitchen is another place to practice. And this is why we do the practices at all. If you've been around the last few years, you know these practices, things like prayer and silence and solitude and fasting, on down the list, they're carried out by the mind and the body. They are habits to be accomplished in order that we might orient our whole person, mind, body, and soul, to and around God. The spiritual disciplines, something that we've always said, the spiritual disciplines are a means to an end, and that end is to be with Jesus. These are ancient practices. We didn't make them up. They are time-tested all the way back to the time of Jesus in the early church, and they have been tested as effective, even necessary ways that we present ourselves to God in order to be with Him. We adjust the chaotic frequency of our own lives so that it harmonizes with the Spirit of God, and in doing so, we experience the life that Jesus called life to the fullest And we live in a constant state of connectedness to God. As time carries on, we become transformed from the inside out to become more like Jesus. But, again, how exactly do you do this? As often as I've taught on this and as many conversations as I've had about it over the years, believe me, I get it. The question surfaces and resurfaces again and again. How exactly? How in the world do you keep in step with the Spirit or abide in the vine, as Jesus said, or practice the presence of God? How do you do that in a world of social media and text messages and a job and a hobby and two-year-olds, whatever it might be? And I think the answer, as frustratingly simple as it sounds, is to live like Jesus. Here's what I mean. To experience the life of Jesus, one must adopt the lifestyle of Jesus, And this is, of course, true of anything. Your life is the byproduct of your lifestyle. And by lifestyle, I mean your rituals and routines, the way you spend your time, your money, the way you organize your day and prioritize your calendar. In business jargon, you know, your system is perfectly designed for the result that you are getting. Jesus once said, as we read just a little while ago, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. And I suspect that many of us read a statement like that with a shade of disbelief. We don't always feel the peace of Jesus. In fact, we feel anxious or cluttered. We feel chaotic and conflicted. And so we start to wonder, was Jesus lying? Am I doing something wrong? How does one get at this alleged peace on offer? And the answer, again, is in the question, by following Jesus. Or put another way, by basing your lifestyle on the template established by Jesus himself. Remember this, Jesus is obviously the example of what it means to be God, sure, but he's every bit as much the example of what it means to be truly human. An aspect of Jesus' identity, or his calling, if you like, was to show the world the best way to be a human being. I know that For those of you who have been here a while, this is nothing mind-blowing. We've been at this for years now. But over the span of those years and across a hundred conversations, the overwhelming lament echoing out across frustrated and flawed discipleship has been this. I want to do it, but I'm not doing it. Again, Dallas Willard puts it this way. The general human failing is to want what is right and important, but at the same time, not to commit to the kind of life that will produce the action we know to be right and the condition we want to enjoy. This or this is the feature of human character that explains why the road to hell is paved with good intentions. We intend what is right, but we avoid the life that would make it a reality. That is to say, we all want... Even if we're not prepared to admit as much out loud, we all all want a life of love and joy and peace, what Jesus called the life that is truly life. We all ache for it as human beings. We crave it, and yet we cannot seem to take the necessary measures in order to see that which God has made available to us actually made manifest in our lives. Many of us are simply sitting around waiting for it to happen or going through these same old rote routines expecting that something will change. One such technique, William Paulsell writes, It is unlikely that we will deepen our relationship with God in a casual or haphazard manner. There will be a need for some intentional commitment and some reorganization in our own lives, but there is nothing that will enrich our lives more than a deeper and clearer perception of God's presence in the routine of daily living. Sensing a theme here. I've just begun meeting with a spiritual director and we were talking about this idea at our first meeting, or it came up when I didn't expect it to. And he told me, as you know, I was asking him why, or I was telling him why I sought out spiritual direction, and he was asking what I was looking for. And in the end, he said, Well, really, this will be about you being with God. And I sat there waiting for him to finish a sentence that had already been completed. These last few months, I've been waking up to pray the same thing that I've begun to pray in moments throughout the day, driving, cleaning up, making coffee, mowing the grass, and simply saying, God, I want to be with you. It is the prayer of a child. Some of you guys who have small kids know about this. You'll tell them that you're running to the store or walking to the garage or mailbox or bathroom, and they'll run to you and say, but I want to go with you. And then they grow out of it, and so do we. I've been praying to grow back into it. And the difference between the two paradigms is that whereas parents often have to tell their children, no, you can't come with me to the office or to the toilet, when you ask God, where are you going? Can I come with you? God will always say, as Jesus did, yes, come and see. Jesus knew this and he lived this. The lifestyle of Jesus is the root to the life of Jesus. All of Jesus' life was the overflow of an inner disposition shaped by what he called abiding in the vine. So to end tonight, I understand that for any of you who have been around for a while, this is a sermon that you've likely heard before. But how many of us have mastered the practice of the presence of God? I know I haven't. Or here's a more sobering question. How many of us have grown at all in constant communion with the Spirit of Jesus over the last year. Do you feel like you're getting better at it or worse? Learning to be with God is not like taking up a new hobby. For some of us, it's about continuing and established rhythms and evolving those rhythms over time as the Spirit leads. But for many of us, it will be a complete renewing, restoring, and reinvigorating of a relationship long in want of deeper intimacy. It confuses people, I think, that this profoundly mystic and holy contemplative tradition could be as simple as just bringing your mind again and again back to the present and personal reality of God until you learn more and more to keep it there. But there it is. That's it. It's not just thinking about God. It's remembering that you are with God and that God is with you and bringing your mind into that awareness again and again and again throughout every day. You might talk while this happens. You might ask questions. You might express your feelings to God or you might just sit there in that awareness. Just sit there and be with Jesus. Sometimes in these moments, I've heard incredible things from God's spirit. Um, Just the other day, I was trying to, as best as I could, um, bring my mind back to the awareness of God as I was walking to my son's school to pick him up. And out of nowhere, he said, I, I want you to tell your friend that I say this about him. Oh, okay. Sometimes it's like that. Sometimes God speaks. It's not even just for me. It's for someone else. Sometimes I spend the entire time fighting off you know, distraction and the stress of life enough to remember that I'm in God's presence at all. And it's frustrating, and it feels as if it is fruitless, but then you go back to it again a little bit later. Other times, there's not much said or done. There's not much frustration to speak of. It's just a simple sense of satisfaction that God is there, and you can be with God, God's availability. And yeah, we pray all kinds of different ways. We petition God, we air grievances, we lament, we ask for things, we worship, we talk, we listen. But we also just sit there in order to simply be with Jesus. And being with Jesus is the vine out of which the branches of our discipleship grow and flower and flourish. On vacation last week, I decided to utilize that time as best as I could to really try to practice the presence of God as actively and consistently as possible throughout the day with nothing to do but, you know, sit in a pool or beside it reading. I thought, hey, this would be a wonderfully undistracting opportunity to invest in this practice a little more. So all throughout the day, I would bring my mind back to God and just say hi. Is there anything you want to say? And then, you know, keep reading or whatever it was. I'd speak to God in my mind like a friend who was present. That didn't need some kind of emptying out of the mind and deep meditation. Those things are great. You should do them. But God is also accessible in the chaos of life. So I would just say hi or I'd speak to God in my mind like a friend who was present. Or as I'm talking with my kids, I would talk to God about my kids, or my wife, or our day. And more and more in my mind, even just across that week, my mind seemed to drift back, eventually, on its own accord, even in such a small space of practice. And I realized how achievable this seemingly far-fetched thing is. I found that awareness, accessed even off and on, and certainly imperfectly, Seeped into the margins of my thinking and feeling and began to inform the things that I said and did, the, the refining of my patience and peace and joy. I didn't become some kind of saint or anything like that. I just felt very different and very aware of God's presence more and more as the week went on. Simply put, God becomes more real, more personal, He becomes closer. In my morning time of prayer and scripture, I've been reading this great little book by Thomas Kelly called A Testament of Devotion. Kelly was a renowned Quaker who wrote beautifully about practicing the presence of God. I want to read to you, it's not going to be on a slide. I just want to read to you a couple of pages from this book. He describes the process like this It is like the background of a picture, which extends all the way across behind a tree in the foreground. It's not that we merely know intellectually that the background of the picture has been unbroken we experience aesthetically that it does extend across. Again, it is like waking from sleep, yet knowing, not by inference, but by immediate awareness that we have lived even while we were asleep. For sole preoccupation with the world is sleep, but immersion in him is life but Kelly is not unrealistic about the process. He goes on to write this, periods of dawning simultaneity and steadfast prayer may come and go lapsing into alternation for long periods and returning in glorious power. I love how he describes the simple state of being aware of God's presence as glorious power. My prayer for myself, for you, for our church is that over and against all the distractions, all the ugly enmity tangled into our waking lives in spite of every lie, every distortion of truth and freedom and goodness being marketed and sold on flags and smartphone feeds that we might, in spite of it all, be changed and molded over in the ways of God by the simple and persistent willingness to come into his presence again and again and again. And out of that withness with God, Studying the scriptures, the worship, the prayer, everything becomes enriched in the generous presence of the God who is with us. I can do that. You can do that. We can do that together in our communities and as a family, as a church, all by God's empowering presence in us because God has already closed the gap between us and him and he is already and always with us. And we can learn to be with him. Let me pray and ask that the Spirit would continue to teach us the truth. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancitychurch. You can support Vance City financially at vancitychurch/give.